CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bulfinch. And we are excited this week. Uh, as usual, we are going to explore the byways and backwaters of the numismatic hobby. But even more importantly, we have an interview with John Kralovich. Those uh, sharp-eared listeners will remember his name from an earlier episode. We are delighted to bring him back to this show to impart more wisdom, information, uh, really fascinating discussion with uh, with John about a project, big project he's working on. Uh, and of course, you know, the usual uh, the usual stuff we do here. The impetus for our having John back on, aside from the fact that we enjoy talking to him and value his numismatic acumen, uh, we also talk about, in addition to an exciting project of his, we also talk about a story that broke. It broke a few weeks ago now, a time of recording, but was somewhat fresher when we interviewed him, and it was the um, the uh, record-breaking sale of the Battle of Cowpens medal. Um, so we talk at, with um, Karlovich uh, at length about that, uh, which was really enjoyable. So it was a great yes. interview, and we hope you enjoy it. If you have been enjoying uh, this, if you end up enjoying this episode, if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, please keep on listening every week and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would also be remiss not to thank Cornworld Plus for sponsoring this episode. Go check them out. Um, go check out that service. It's you know it's it's certain we um, we are grateful to them for uh, for supporting us. And with that housekeeping out of the way, uh, let's uh, let's go on with the show. We're looking at some of the backwaters of numismatic history, Jeff. What uh, which particular backwater are we swimming in today? Well, before we go exploring there, I want to stay at the forefront of what's in the news right now. You're um, you're paying attention to a story by our colleague Paul Jilks uh, about a potential commemorative coin coming next year, right? Yeah. So legislation has been introduced to create a, a commemorative silver dollar um, to honor the 100th anniversary centennial of the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, if this law passes and if this coin ends up being produced, it will technically be commemorating the 101st anniversary since the memorial was dedicated in 1922. So... To be the centennial issue, they would have had to have it this year, which they did not. So they, they might so, have. So wait, so so wait a minute. So there's a, a bill being introduced in Congress to issue in 2023 a coin celebrating an event happening in 2022. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Um, <laughs> there have been commemorative coins issued commemorating events in off years, so to speak. The um, 1921 Alabama Centennial Half Dollar, for example, commemorated the 100th anniversary of Alabama's admission into the Union, but that happened in 1819, so the Centennial would have been 1919. In fact, the coin has three dates on it. It has 1818, 1919, and 1921. So, and it's it's actually an issue that we've talked about on the podcast before. It's actually it's it's notable uh, in a number of respects, but we don't have time to get into that now. Yeah, Jeff, I think you, before the show, you and I were talking about um. 
a more recent commemorative from the early 1990s kind of um, has a similar issue with the date, right? Well, there's a couple actually, but you know, my mind immediately goes to the 1991 Korean War Memorial coin, uh, and um, the coin has the dates 1953-1991. As we know, uh, the Korean War started in 1950, so the 40th anniversary would have been 1990. The Korean War ended in 1953, so the 40th anniversary would have been 1993. Well, 1991, as designated on the coin itself, is the 38th anniversary of the end of the war. And, you know, the timing of the legislation, the, um, you know, it it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense when you first glance at it. And another, you know, there was another one like that in the early nineties in 1994, I guess that's more mid nineties, the 1993 dated Thomas Jefferson silver dollar came out. His birth year was 1743. So that coin would uh, mark the 250th anniversary of his birth. And, uh, but you know, the timing of, when they got legislation passed, how quickly they could um, get the designs and all that and the coins made. And, and I checked. It, it didn't occur to me beforehand to look, you know, the Korean War thing. I thought, well, maybe the Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. was what like opened in, say, 1991. No, <laughs> it wasn't dedicated until July 27th, 1995. Now, uh, you know, um, so you know, maybe there was legislation or something in 1991, but anyway, it, it just speaks to this disconnect, this idea that just because uh, there's a date on a coin, it doesn't necessarily have to relate to the topic. And so if, if there ends up being a 2023 silver dollar for the Lincoln Memorial Centennial, it will be odd, but it won't be unique in causing future heads to, to be scratched as you know, like, why is that the way it is? So, uh, you <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> so if, if this legislation passes, we'll, we will update you. If this bill is eventually signed into law and if the coin is ever issued, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll follow up on that. So having spent a few moments in the reflecting on the news, Jeff, what was going on further, a little bit further back in numismatic history, we're going back to the real backwaters now. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't much in the way of things that jumped out to me. Um, But turns out there is an important anniversary that ties into a previous guest that we had. Um, I can't remember. It's been maybe a couple years or a year and a half when we talked about the Fugio scent, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, that, that definitely rings a bell. If you go back to May 21st, 1788, that was when James Jarvis and company delivered 400,000 Fugio scents to the national government. Now, the Fugio scent is uh, a famed colonial uh, coin item that's kind of a big deal. Uh, certainly, it's one of those things that's featured in the Red Book. If you go to your Red Book uh, and flip through the, um, you know, the 
continental currency era listings. You will see uh, contract issues and patterns headings. You will see the Fugio sent and uh, some iterations thereof. That's kind of a big deal in numismatic history. It jumped out to me. There were some other things that were just kind of interesting, but not, you know, like what? Do, how do I hang my hat on that that same day, but in, 19, uh, in 1861, Confederate troops occupied the Charlotte Mint? Well, you know, we know of some Confederate-issued stuff from New Orleans. I don't know that there's anything uh, that came out of their, their occupation of the Charlotte Mint. So interesting, but how do you extrapolate on it? Not really. You know, ooh, the Bank of Taiwan was established. I mean, you know, in May 20th, 1946. Interesting, but, you know, not really, doesn't really move the needle like I thought the Fugio Scent story would. So that is what was happening this week in numismatic history. Oh, very good. I have to imagine that people in Taiwan would have found the establishment of the Bank of Taiwan pretty, uh, pretty important. But to your point, it's hard to extrapolate. It's more of a, it's more of a fun fact than it is something that ties thematically into any of the rest of what we normally talk about. So I, uh, I do kind of follow that. So yeah, so Jeff, we're so we're taking a look at a back issue of Corn World as we always do. We're looking at uh, May sixteenth, twenty sixteen. Why are we looking at that particular issue, and what did you see that was of interest on the front page? Well, I'm going to throw you for a loop. I chose 2016 because that was the year John Kralovich was the American Numismatic Association Numismatist of the Year. But uh, I'm pivoting. I did not really i mean we could i can reference something that was on the front page it was a story related to the 2016 mercury dime gold version but i wanted to talk about a story that i wrote self-serving selfishly you know i wrote a story about how to find world coins uh dealer sources and other things because that's a question that i get so often is well where do i find this stuff you know it's it's easy to you know especially if you can't go to a show say or you know like there weren't shows for much of the last two years, where do you find this stuff? And so I listed some obvious sources, uh, specific dealers, eBay. Another option is uh, delcamp.net. Uh, you have dealer auction hybrids like VCoins, MA shops. You know, I even got to mention my friend Don Norris, who was a previous guest on the show, and his website, World Coin Gallery, which at the time featured more than 60,000 coin photos from something like 1,270 places. Well, now he's he's up to more than 80,000 coin photos from 1,340 places. So, you know, it, it, there's just a, a bevy of places to find world coins. And it's, it's something that, you know, like I say, I, I get asked a lot. And uh, certainly as somebody who writes about the topic on the regular, it was something that uh, that I wanted to explore, but yes, the the front page the the big story was the mint had some uh, uncirculated 2016 W winged Liberty head gold dimes that hadn't sold, you know, basically had been returns or canceled orders or whatever when the coin went on sale that year and quickly sold out or moved into unavailable status, like so many new mint products do, but. Um, like I said, I wanted to talk about my story because uh, of of what it meant to me and how it's a question that is still asked today. But I understand there were some letters about this very contentious topic. Yeah, there were. I feel like every time I begin one of these uh, letter segments, you know, reading letters to the editor, 
I always feel like I, I mentioned that there's sort of a sense of continuity that I always feel that, you know, a lot of the same issues keep popping up. But in the specific context of the 2016 W gold winged Liberty head dime uh, for those listeners who uh, may not have been totally plugged in to the numismatic news, uh, you know, the numismatic news cycle in 2016, um, the mint was issuing gold versions of the winged Liberty head dime, standing Liberty quarter and walking Liberty half dollar to commemorate the centennial of their first year of production, which was 1916, 2016. Centennials seem to be something of a theme in this episode. The coins themselves were, you know, obviously there was some disagreement because there's always disagreement about exactly what gets produced, but these coins were, um, you know, so the dimes had gone up for sale um, sh- uh, shortly before this edition was published, and a number of collectors uh, sent letters to the editor expressing their dissatisfaction. Uh, the first one of which reads, is entitled, uh, Something is Going On, and it reads, quote, Something strange is happening when the Mint issues a limited number of 2016 Mercury Gold dimes and allows 10 to be ordered per address and then sells out in less than an hour. There should have been a maximum of one or two per address to allow collectors a chance to buy one. Why don't you use your investigative reporters to find out how many U.S. Mint employees got their orders in before it sold out? This coin will probably sell in the secondary market for two to three times what the Mint is charging when dealers start selling them. I, for one, will not buy one on the secondary market. I will not try to buy the gold quarter or half dollar either, even considering the speculative opportunities since there will be only a small chance of getting through before they sell out. If I can't buy all three at a reasonable price, I don't want any. There is something rotten in Washington. In, and then in parentheses, Philadelphia, Denver, San Francisco, and West Point. And this was written by someone named Theron Dar, and it was submitted via email. And so I picked this out not only because it relates to the cover story, which was the, the sale of these 2016 um, gold dimes, but you know, many collectors express frustration when a product sells out in letters to the editor or in comments on social media or in coin collector forums. There are many online. You know, and there is sort of a sense that, you know, someone is getting the inside track, right? There, you know, and different letter writers point the finger to different places, whether it's the mint itself, whether it's, oh, well, the dealers are getting a sweetheart deal, the mint employees are getting a sweetheart deal, you know. And and again, people's frustration with the, you know, the higher secondary market prices and their frustration not being able to obtain one. And I mean, and, and the letter writer even mentioned something that is has often been brought to the attention of, you know, uh, not only of our staff, but of anyone who follows these issues, which is the household ordering limit. In the case of the 2016 uh, dime that we're talking about, it was it was 10 per household. So some people argue that there should be one per household to prevent people from, you know, the, the more an individual purchaser can buy, you know, ultimately the faster something would sell out, assuming that there is a reasonable, assuming that the demand is roughly the same. Whereas if you had one per customer in theory, it wouldn't sell out as quickly though. Obviously there is sometimes, you know, dealers or other people who want to get many examples to sell in secondary market will coordinate multiple buyers. The point is this is kind of a perennial complaint. So the letter kind of felt sort of familiar, but Jeff, we were discussing this letter before we went on and, and I was very intrigued by a couple of things you were saying. So could you elaborate a little bit on what you were saying? For a long time, collectors have made these allegations about insider trading, if you will, in the hobby and uh, people capitalizing on this stuff that um, there must be somebody at the mint you know, they're either allowing dealers to order ahead of time or order more than they're 
the general public or this or that. And, you know, the reality is there's, there's been nothing nefarious that we can determine. Certainly when you couple that with the reality that until recently, I mean, they did start this authorized bulk purchaser program in 2021 uh, that does allocate like 10%, I think of, of a given mintage to a certain number of a small number of, of dealers ahead of time. We see, and, and any collector who is astute enough to really observe the market in depth, and, and I understand there's a that's loaded in the sense that how many folks are privileged to, to spend hours a day, 10 hours a day, looking at the coin market and, and coin history and other things, right? But I myself have been a recipient from of several emails from dealers because I bought something from them on eBay. And then when there was a new coin coming out in the three to seven days before the, the product launch, dealers were saying, hey, if you get this coin, you can sell it to me for a guaranteed profit of X dollars, minimum X. And you know, if you lock in now, uh, it's this, but the price may change. You know, it could go up, it could go down once sales begin and the the real market demand starts to be present, right? You know, there's there's a fluidity in that market that you can tell if if something sells out within 20, 30 minutes or moves to unavailable status or however the mint terms it, well, then obviously there was significant demand, whether that demand was coming from people who are buying to resell or whether that's from actual collectors who just want a couple. I like the um, household limit and I like the... Um, having a guaranteed order period so that anyone can, you know, if you want to have a, a maximum mintage, anyone can throw their name in the lottery to get picked. I don't know that one is the answer because, you know, there are many collectors who are doing this for their children and they have two or three children, right? So, you know, at what point do you cap it and how do you accommodate all those folks uh, that are quote unquote real collectors, uh, from the folks who are just the speculators. And look, there's a community, I've said this before, of folks who are interested in getting all sorts of airline miles and sign up bonuses from credit cards and all that. There's folks in that community that get tipped off to these co- the coin availability and they go try to buy it to get easy money, both from selling the coin immediately, but also then, you know, hey, I can buy a, you know, a thousand dollar or a $3,000 gold coin and get 3000 airline miles and make 200 bucks at the same time, whatever, you know, until recently, we didn't have that authorized purchaser program, which is very small. The argument rings hollow until last year. And then when you couple that with the fact that we see wholesale buys from, you know, from dealers who are trying to make markets in these coins, who are taking the risk, who are putting their money where their mouth is, they're saying, you know, I expect to be able to get this quickly encapsulated with a special label, whatever the case may be, and turn around and make a profit, which I'm not a fan of those products. There's obviously a market for it. And so people are meeting that demand. And, you know, there's the capitalist, the, you know, the American in me says, okay, great. You know, this is what I'm contending with, uh, you know, as a collector. And 
I don't know how you weed out those people and that you even can, but um, the fact that we know that there's strong support for creating aftermarket products, and I would say that's an aftermarket product. It's not coming direct from the U.S. Mint to the consumer. It's going to an intermediary, you know, and in, and in some cases of the slab stuff, two intermediaries, right? The dealer who's buying it, and then they're sending it to the grading service, and then they're sending it to the, the end user, the, the customer. They are creating aftermarket demand for this product, in essence, creating new products. So, the allegations of sort of this insider trading stuff, it just doesn't track. The market is responding to demand and some folks choose to engage in that and and try to capitalize on it. How many collectors say, yeah, I bought three and I sold two, so I got mine for free, basically. It's not something... I can do or would do, but you know, it's, it's, it's up to the individual and everybody gets to choose their own path, choose your own adventure. And, um, you know, so like I say, until recently, these allegations, there's nobody can ever offer any evidence to it other than just this sense or this feeling that something's rotten, as you said, maybe that speaks to this is the market. This is how, you know, things are. And the only way you change the market or change that reality is to educate people that, okay, you know, if you want to go this track, this is the repercussions. I myself would never within the first two months of an issue, go buy a coin in a special slab with a special label, right? I mean, that's, to me, that's not a real product. It's, I mean, it is a product, but it's not, it, what what does the label add to it? You know, if it's a if it's a new U.S. Mint product and I'm ordering direct from the Mint, I don't have to worry about it being counterfeit, right? I mean, that's that's not happened yet. You know, more than likely it's going to grade sixty nine or seventy, and unless I'm building a set registry, what do I care? You know, if I like the design, like the theme, whatever the case may be, so it's unnecessary. There are situations where I think grading adds value and, you know, having the coin encapsulated to protect against damage, whatever the case may be. But I don't think new issues are necessarily the way to go. But you know what? That's just my opinion. Everybody has their own opinion and every, you know, every collecting path and journey is different. Yeah. And and having realistic expectations when collecting modern mint products is probably important and understanding the dynamics of the secondary market, which you laid out very well. Um, just there is obviously another crucial part of of that collecting specialty. I mean, it's it's a part of any collecting specialty having a sense of the market. But in the case of modern mint products, you know, the market is made, you know, to some extent immediately after the sale of these coins, which is obviously different than collecting Morgan dollars, where you know the the issue. Well, actually, that's actually not a great example because the mint has been putting out, uh, you know, put out those uh, commemorative. I, I don't, again, maybe maybe commemorative is the wrong word, but they put out the, the 2021 issues of the Morgan Peace Dollar. So maybe um, we'll go the different analogy and say the, um, you know, a seated liberty coinage, for example. You know, yeah. none of that has been issued since 1891. So the market, to some extent, formed after that, where the market is forming much sooner in the case of modern mint products, which, and again, you described the market dynamics and some of the issues to consider very well. And to your point about the the different slabs, I share your kind of skepticism, maybe, or your 
lack of interest uh, in terms of in terms of a, as a collector. I don't mean I don't mean that as an editorial opinion on their merit more broadly. I just mean that for my own collecting interest, that just isn't something I would go for. But hey, you know, you all you all in the audience have to make those determinations for yourselves. But it does seem like between the pro- proliferation of third party grading labels and the massive number of well. I should, maybe perhaps massive is is overstating it a bit, but the proliferating number of mint products, you know, between medals, commemorative coins, and different versions of bullion coins. I mean, the American Silver Eagle program and sort of the various finishes there have been one, uh, you know, one area where you've seen a number of different products being issued year to year. I think that that increasing number of products begins to make collecting modern mint products and keeping up with the full U.S. mint catalog more and more difficult and not, and probably more and more unobtainable, particularly for collectors, you know, collectors like us, frankly, of, of relatively modest means, you know, it is hard to, you know, keep up, you know, you, depending on what your uh, yearly budget for coin collecting is, you could spend a good chunk, if not all of your budget, just on, on any given year's issues um, of stuff that's just coming out of the mint. And, you know, there's no guarantee that the secondary market for some of these products stays, um, you know, stays strong. In fact, I think, uh, I think John Karlovich shared with us, uh, a sort of numismatic aphorism that I like, uh, in our first interview with him, so, you know, sometimes there are more of, uh, you know, there are more coins than there are people who want to collect it. So even something with a relatively small mintage that doesn't guarantee a, uh, a large secondary market years down the road. So anyway, that was, that was a wonderful digression that I think, uh, you know, really got into some of the complexities of the issue that the letter was talking about, but I'm going to quickly pivot to another letter, which also deals with the 2016, uh, dimes, but through a very, uh, the 2016 gold dimes, but through a very different lens. Uh, the letter is entitled a softer strike and it reads, I ordered five of the gold dimes from the mint, which were delivered today. As a quick aside, this guy ordered five of them, and the guy was complaining about the ten caps. So, you know, this is an example of a collector ordering more than one. Um, Three of the five are okay. Two are being returned for what I consider to be significant reverse rim damage. Just thought I'd add my experience. Also, none of my examples seem to have the kind of strong strikes often seen on vintage Mercs. Mercs being an abbreviation for Mercury Dime, which is a term used for Winged Liberty Head Dimes. Mercury Dimes is what they are often called. Um, no quote full split bands, for instance. I wonder if the designer dies for this issue include such details, or if they were going for a softer look. I found this letter interesting for two reasons. The first is that you know this guy ordered five of of a possible ten, that the household ordering limit being ten, which was an issue raised in the previous letter, so it connected in that sense. But I also found the question about full split bands really interesting. You know how you know, was the mint going for like sort of perfect historical fidelity to the, the wing Liberty head dime. And if so, what constitutes full historical fidelity of that design? I mean, not all winged Liberty head dimes were struck with full split bands, full split bands, you know, denotes coins with a, you know, with a sharp strike often an earlier die state. Um, though that's, you know, the, the complexities of that probably merit their own podcast, but you know, what would you know? What would be more "quote unquote" accurate? What would be a more accurate way to remember the Mercury dime? Full split bands or no no full split bands? I just I found that so I found that that is sort of an interesting issue of how we, um, you know, how we think about these things. Uh, so our last letter, um, I picked because it fe- it features a reference to a previous podcast guest, and again, it raises um what I thought was uh, an in- a couple of interesting issues. Um, it's entitled "Full Horns and Shows," and it reads in quote. 
In response to William Eckberg's guest commentary on do third-party grading services grade accurately and consistently in the April 11th issue, I agree with him that to grade very fine, a buffalo nickel should have a full horn as per the American Numismatic Association grading standard. If this is not the case, change the standard or change the third-party grading. It would be nice if all agreed on one standard. In regards to the Palm Beach Coin Club, it was unfair of William to categorize all club members as collecting either Morgan Dollars or Silver American Eagles. We have a very diverse coin club. We have foreign collectors, type collectors, proof type collectors, and yes, even large cent collectors. New members tend to collect Morgan Dollars and modern coins, but over a period of time they change. And this was written by uh, Tony Swicer, um, and he's from the Palm Beach Coin Club. You know, so I picked this uh, because we've had uh, William Eckberg uh, on the show before. He's a previous podcast guest. Um, and the point about the uh, about grading Buffalo Nichols was interesting, you know, that the American Numismatic Association standard of a full horn for a coin to grade VF20 was not necessarily the standard being used by third-party grading services. So, you know, every once in a while, you'll see instances where the third-party grading services are using a grading standard somewhat different, either than the one enumerated by the ANA, or uses a different grading standard than the one that some specialists use. So, again, it was just interesting to see that friction. One of the selling points of third-party grading is that it codified a consistent standard, but again, in certain cases, there are are bits of friction or or disconnects between you know specialized grading standards and maybe the standard that um, uh, a grader might be using. And then I also just thought the commentary about the um, the Palm Beach Coin Club was interesting. A lot of beginners do gravitate towards Morgan dollars. I mentioned Morgan dollars and American Silver Eagles when discussing a previous letter, so obviously that's in my head too. Um, as far as things that a lot of people collect. Um, but, you know, but again, to his point, this is a Big Ten hobby. I think that was the name of our first episode. And, you know, there's a pretty broad variety of interest represented in uh, in different coin clubs. I know that, you know, when Jeff and I were part of the Shelby County Coin Club out in Ohio, I know there were, you know, uh, different people who collect different things. I seem to remember someone co- uh, specializing in coinage depicting butterflies. So, you know, there's a wide variety of collecting interests and uh, all of them are valid. Now that you've looked at the letters, I think it's time for you to... Uh, stand up to the trivia test. Last week, last episode, I asked, we were talking about, we talked to Thomas Walker, great uh, interview and about his books. Um, And so I asked a rather easy question, sort of. Uh, We were talking about large sense and, and I got to thinking, how large is a large cent? So, uh, and, and in this case, maybe you can give me the weight as well. Do you happen to know how big a large cent is diameter and how much it weighs? So the diameter is about 28 millimeters and it weighs 10.89 grams, roughly. The chain large cent, the first one, 1793, weighed 13.48 grams and was about 26 to 27 millimeters. And uh, then you had different weights for the various thick planchet and thin planchet versions. So you are correct. This was sort of a trick question unintentionally. Yeah, I was going to say there there is some variability between the different types. So yes. that probably would have been, that would have been a wiser answer, but I decided to pick before we did, I remember the question. So I went and I poked around and started looking at um, PCGS coin facts. And I, I was looking at it for 1808, but I imagine okay. that there are, you know, like you said, it varies by, by date and type. 
So uh, 29 millimeters approximately for the Liberty cap size, uh, 10.89 grams. I think you were in that neighborhood. The idea is it varies, but it's generally within a, a nice little band or range. That's one of the things that makes large sense fun is that there's this variability and there's so much variability in the varieties that because of the the different die cutting that had to be done you know it wasn't as insanely mechanized like today where you have all the the hubbing and everything's precision 100 percent exactly the same i mean shoot even till the 90s we had wide am and and other you know varieties and and the mint mark uh position would sometimes change you know, because somebody, you know, the engraver put it in the wrong spot, sort of. Maybe it was an unintentionally a trick question, but you handled it well. Uh, very good. This next question is not at all a trick question. Although although it is an expert level question, I believe you will be able to answer it uh, with ease. The question is, how many Native Americans were employed as composite models for the Buffalo nickel or so-called Indian head five cent coin um, that debuted in 1913. We talk about uh, Native Americans and others in uh, numismatic history a little bit with our uh, with John Kralovich in our interview. And um, the, the question is also apt because we were talking about grading standards for um, Indian head five cent pieces or Buffalo nickels uh, back in the letter section. So it works on yes. that level too. Yes. So think about that as you... Uh, listen to the interview with John Kralovich. We had a blast. Hope you do as well. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by a returning guest, none other than John Kralovich. Uh, listeners may know him for his previous appearance, of course, on the Coin World Podcast, and as the owner of JK Americana, as well as many, 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 many other notable things in this wonderful hobby over the last, oh, I'd say maybe three decades. Thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thanks for having me again. We wanted to talk to you most uh, recently because of a, a really fun thing that got all sorts of media pickup. Of course, Coin World uh, reported on it. But this major story was about the 1839 Daniel Morgan gold medal. Can you talk about uh, your involvement in cataloging that, what you discovered in doing that, and, and just give us a peek uh, behind that story in the recent news? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, a story that I discovered for myself. I certainly wasn't the first person to encounter this story, but but I found out about it uh, in 2001. Uh, and that was back when I was uh, working for Bowers and Morena. I was a young guy with a ponytail and I was working in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. One day, Dave Bowers came in my office and said, hey, John, do you know anything about Betts Metals? And, uh, you know, I'm 21 or 22 years old. And sure, Dave, I know a little bit about Betts Metals. I've collected them a little bit. What you got? And uh, he takes me into the conference room there in Wolfboro, overlooking Lake Winnipesaukee, and introduces me to a, a fellow named Lucien LaRiviere. Uh, and Lucien LaRiviere mm -hmm. owned a bridal shop in Providence, Rhode Island, and was the kindest man I think I've ever met in my whole life. Just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, Lucian had a cabinet, quite literally a coin cabinet, full of some of the best bets medals on the planet. And Dave said, uh, you know, why don't you go ahead and look through the cabinet? We'd like you to catalog these. Oh, wow. Okay. 
sure, I can do that. Uh, so Lucian and I hit it off. I actually have that cabinet here in my office now. He gave it to me after I cataloged that collection. And uh, that was sort of the the first big Betts Metal collection, first, certainly the first one I ever got to do and kind of the first one uh, that had been done at public auction in, in many, many years. We broke a, a record for most valuable American historical medal at that point. We sold his Thomas Jefferson Indian Peace Medal for $115,000, which was an enormous number for a medal in 2001. In cataloging his his Betts medals and his Commission Americana medals, I tried to add a little bit more historical flavor and special spice and all that kind of stuff to the descriptions more than just straightforward. Here's the Betts number. Here's the composition. Here's the grade. And kind of embarked on the, the cataloging style that I've, I've kind of retained to this day. It kind of came from that catalog. Um, but in, in describing his 1839 Daniel Morgan and Cowpence medal in bronze, which is the typical composition that you see it in, I found this story of the gold medal and, and why those dyes were made in 1839, uh, that they were made because the original gold medal that had been struck in Paris in 1789 uh, during the first round of production of Commission Americana medals, um, that that medal had been lost in the first ever bank robbery in the history of Pittsburgh. My goodness, what a cool story. So so I put a little bit of that in the catalog back in 2001, and, and as I'm prone to do, kind of chase down the rabbit hole because I just had to know the rest of that story. And, and I actually put that story together for a banquet lecture for the PAN show, for the Pennsylvania Association of Numismatists. They invited me to be their banquet uh, speaker in Pittsburgh in about 2000, I don't know, 2004 or something like that. And banquet talks, uh, especially for a, a numismatic audience, they aren't supposed to be real technical. Nobody wants to hear about dye varieties. There's a lot of spouses and families there. They want you to spin a yarn. They want to hear a story. And what could possibly be better than this story of criminal hijinks and and uh, uh, burglars who were escape artists and national press, uh, a sort of bumbling bank robbery that happened to end up with this American treasure at the bottom of, uh, of the Ohio River. Uh, so I explored the story quite a bit then, and this is this is 20 years ago. And at no point during that research did I uncover that that metal survived. Did I uncover that that metal might still be kicking around? Um, and I sort of you know set it aside and forgot about it. And then uh, you know here a few years ago, I, I started to get contacted by a, a fellow who thought maybe he had it. And so you know we developed a rapport. Eventually, the the, the metal came across my desk, and I was able to actually. Uh, take a look at it and confirm that it was the gold medal uh, struck for Daniel Morgan's grandson uh, by special order of Congress. They called the act a, an act to renew Daniel Morgan's Calpens medal after it had been lost to the bottom of the Ohio River. And here it was, and it was a beautiful gem, and it was in the original box, and the thing was just glorious. And then I had to set about seeing if I could improve my understanding of that story from 20 years ago. And, and there's a lot more uh, digital resources. There's a lot better research venues around now. So I ended up writing about 5,000 words on it and went to a member of the, of the press in South Carolina and said, hey, I've got this cool story for you. And from there, it hit the Associated Press and went international and ended up on CBS Sunday morning and the whole nine yards. And uh, for listeners who aren't exactly aware or haven't been following the news cycle as closely, uh, this medal just sold for $960,000 on April 4. That's, um, you know, compares to the presale estimate of a quarter to a half a million dollars. So quite an enormous sum. Is, is that the record for a U.S. medal? 
So it, it kind of depends upon how you define U.S. metal. It's, it's a record, <laughs> as always, um, you know, anything can be a world record as long as you define it correctly. It's a record for what I like to call an American historical medal. And, and by American historical medal, I generally mean a commemorative medal. In other words, uh, a medal uh, typically struck in a metallic composition, uh, typically uh, struck you know, typically round, but a medal struck to commemorate a historical event, therefore an American historical medal. Um, like Jesse Owens' gold medal from 1936 brought more. It's an Olympic medal. It was made and awarded in Germany to an American. Is that an American medal? Eh, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. contextually, perhaps. Um, the or, li- or like um, the um, the Swedish award medals, the Nobel Prize medals. Are, you know, if an American receives it, is it an American medal or is it? Yeah, I mean, it's still a Swedish metal, you know, it just happened, you know, like, like Frick's metal for discovering DNA sold for millions and millions of dollars several years ago. Um, And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, it's certainly not an American historical medal, it's an award medal, and I would argue that it's not an American medal anyway. Um, The only other thing that, that I guess could be a claim to the throne is the gold society of the Cincinnati Eagle um, mm-hmm. that had been given by Lafayette to Washington, um, which is a, a hanging badge. It's not properly a medal, and no one at that time called it a medal. It's, it's basically a, a jewelry form, a, a piece of gold that's engraved into the, the shape and manner of an eagle surrounded by like a jewel-encrusted arc. So, you know, if you showed that to 100 Americans and said, is this, is this a medal?, I would argue that, you know, 99 of them would have no idea what you were talking about. And the hundredth one would probably grab it and run away because they knew it was gold. Um, <laughs> you know, so I don't I don't class that as an American historical medal anyway, because it's not really a commemorative medal. It's a it's an order or a decoration or a, a, a jewelry piece or, or you know, a, a military order, or whatever you want to call it. So so in the realm of American historical medals, which includes probably 95 percent of what we tend to think of as collectible medals. It's, you know, far and away the champion. It, it surpassed the recent record that Stax Bowers uh, got for the William Henry Harrison gold medal uh, awarded for the Battle of the Thames in the War of 1812 that, that brought 600 grand last year. So in your answer a couple minutes ago, you actually anticipated uh, one of my next questions, but I'd be curious to hear you elaborate a little bit on this point. You mentioned that as you were, you know, revisiting the story and as, um, you know, this, you know, they're preparing to bring this medal up for sale, that you'd reached out to a couple of, um, a couple of journalists at local or regional newspapers. You know, the story did get quite a bit of play, like you mentioned. I mean, it ended up on, you know, major uh, national outlets. What's your sense when you were reaching out to, you know, writers and, and editors and, and staff people at, at newspapers and, and other outlets in certain your initial sort of media blitz, if you will, how receptive do you find, you know, journalists and editors are to numismatic stories? Obviously, we're talking about uh, writers and editors outside of the numismatic press. How receptive do you find that they are to these kind of stories and which kinds of numismatic stories do you find they're most receptive to? So I wouldn't say they're receptive to numismatic stories. I think they're receptive to a good story, period, um, no matter what that's about. Um, you know, I happened to reach out to a guy I'd had a previous relationship with uh, who understood a little bit about coins. He has collected, you know, some coins over the course of his life, so he wasn't an absolute total novice. Um, but, you know, the, the thrust of the story isn't so much about the object 
It's the story of where it came from, how it was lost, the family, the heroism. Uh, the newspaper that originally picked it up is the newspaper that serves the area where the battle happened in, in the Battle of Calpens in 1781 in the upstate of South Carolina. So it's their local paper. So, you know, this is a cool local story. Um, I will say that non-numismatic journalists are generally attracted to uh, something that illustrates well, uh, like, you know, a, a story about a, oh, I don't know, a 1916D dime. You know, it's a dime. It You know, it looks like a dime. And, you know, there are people around that remember the dimes like that in circulation, but it's it doesn't have a, a certain panache or sex appeal that like a big intricate gold medal does when you put that, you know, online or, or in the paper. And the other thing is it's got a big gaudy number attached to it. I mean, people love treasure hunts. I mean, look at reality TV from storage wars to pawn stars to the metal detecting shows. Americans love a treasure hunt. And this story ultimately is a story about a treasure that's been lost and found and lost and found again. Uh, and and that's a, a persuasive kind of story. And if you look at the coin stories that have really gotten traction in non-numismatic press over the years, most of them are treasure stories. They're not stories of hey, this rich guy owned this gold coin and we put it up for auction and it brought a lot of money. That's not that interesting to people. But if it's, you know, somebody found something for nothing and it was at a yard sale and, oh my God, a little old lady needed it to put tires on her car and it sold at auction and everybody cried and then they all went out for a drink, that's a much better story. People like that kind of narrative. Absolutely. Stories sell coins, but uh, stories are also important for our understanding and appreciation of history. Actually, I just really quick, I just have one really quick follow-up. Yeah. Um, so so you mentioned that in, in um, researching these Betts medals and, and your sort of first encounter with the story that we're recovering now, that's, that's sort of evolved over the course of time, you mentioned that you'd honed a cataloging style. How would you, you know, and a cataloging style that I think most people would agree is pretty distinctive. How would you dis best describe that cataloging style? Because we've talked to, we recently had an interview with um, someone from Legend and we were talking to them about sort of how their catalog reads and how best to write a catalog to engage. And, you know, I think we've talked about this at some points in the past, but in terms of engaging, you know, a, a very a highly specialized collector audience or a more general collector audience or even for really high dollar things, you get people who might not have been interested in coins before at all. How do you define your cataloging style and how do you balance, you know, communicating very specific technical information with telling these great stories that you're talking about? Well, I guess my approach, first of all, is when I, when I have an object on my desk is to endeavor to know as much about that object as anyone on the planet before I write a word which is time consuming and which is, is why I've got, you know, thousands and thousands of books in my office. I can't sell something and I don't mean, you know, sell it in terms of, of monetary uh, uh, value. I mean, I can't make something seem appealing to somebody unless I'm speaking from uh, a position of expertise. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of, of cataloging lacks is, you know, if you're writing up a very nice walking Liberty half, and your description evinces the fact that you know less about that coin than the walking liberty half collectors who are likely to bid on it, there's a certain lack of trust that comes from that. So I, I think that being very knowledgeable about your subject matter, no matter what it is, or how much experience with it you might have had before, I think that's important to build trust with the reader or buyer. 
I don't know anything about Mercury Dimes or Buffalo Nickels or Walking Liberty halves. I don't catalog them. I've never had to learn about them. But if I did uh, and I had some, you know, world-class collection of Buffalo Nickels, I would sit down and try to read all of the standard references and see all the big collections and get a sense of the, the data and, and, and then try to weave all of that into a narrative, a narrative with an arc, you know, like a 22 minute sitcom or like a two hour movie, something with a beginning and middle and the end and an end and kind of, you know, bring the reader or the buyer in so that they're coming along for the ride of that narrative with the kind of stuff that I have typically written up, which is to say very nice quality coins like the stuff in the Pogue collection or very historical material like the the metals and tokens and colonials that I'm I'm probably you know most associated with it's very easy to tell a historical story to to create a narrative sometimes that narrative is about what the coin was during its useful life you know and by useful life I mean when it was you know, spending money or when it was a medal given to a military hero. Sometimes that story comes from what happened to it during its collectible life, you know, and that gets into stories of provenance and, you know, like items or, you know, collections it has been in or, or whatever else. But in every item, if there's not a story hook, it's just another object. And, you know, I collect some things that don't have great stories. I mean, you know, there's there's not a, a big story that you can tell about about a lot of coins. Um, you know, no one no one collects a a Franklin half because, you know, that particular issue, the 1953D, has some wonderful dramatic story. It's part of a set and it's a scarcer issue, and this is nicer than most, and that's appealing to people. There's nothing wrong with that. But from my cataloging style, it's all about that story and the drama and finding that hook that will bring someone in. When you started with the story of the Cowpens medal, you mentioned, um, you know, a younger John Karlovich. And I have to admit, as fascinating as I found the story, I really couldn't shake the image of the ponytail John Karlovich. I just found oh, that yeah. kind of yeah, co- colored the colored the story in a very nice way. But the, the radio DJ, John yeah. Karlovich. Yeah, back then, I was fresh off my radio career at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a very brief career in college radio, too. It's, it's a lot of fun. And so I'm picturing the I'm picturing the, uh, the the ponytail John Karlovich doing all this research, but uh, but to another point about your younger self, you post on social media recently um, that you're keeping a promise that you made to your younger self to publish a book. I think the I think the original promise was to prom, publish a book by the time you were 30. Might have missed yep. that mark by a little bit, but you are yep. in the process of putting together a book. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're writing? Sure. Um, most of it's in the can. Um, I need to get back on the horse and, and finish the damn thing and get it between covers and get it on some shelves. But it's a, a book that will be published by Whitman Publishing. Uh, it's entitled Freedom Will Be Ours. And it's a, a book that basically reveals the connections between African-American history and numismatics uh, and uses numismatic objects, coins, medals, tokens, paper money, associated items, uses those objects as entry points as ways to access various chapters of African-American history from uh, settlement and enslavement uh, all the way through the, um, you know, post-civil rights struggle in the modern era. And in so doing, you get introduced to a lot of currently obscure characters. You get introduced to chapters of economic and political and artistic and musical and athletic history. And uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a fun project. It's one that I, I started writing essentially as a series of Facebook posts. And enough people said, oh my God, you should turn this into a book that I figured, all right, well, I, I guess I'll turn this into a book. So that's where we're at. Yes. I, I know I was one of those folks who read with rapt attention and said, you know, this was deserving and, and worthy of a book, you know, because you 
you connected, as you say, all these broader social and political themes and topics. What were the challenges, I guess, um, in moving those vignettes into the book? And can you talk about, you know, is this, are you presenting this chronologically, you know, from say 1609 to now or 1619 to now rather, or how are you organizing that as well? So the, the organization is still uh, a little bit up in the air, but I, I think it's, it's going to be organized sort of uh, roughly thematically. And the, the themes are going to be uh, borrowed from some of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, who was sort of the first, uh, whatever you want to call him, crown prince of African-American history. W.E.B. Du Bois was a, the first African-American man to uh, become a, a Harvard uh, history professor. Um, one of the founders of the NAACP, just an absolutely foundational figure in the annals of any kind of American history. One of his uh, uh, classic books was was organized uh, into like a series of essays, and I'm basically planning on uh, on borrowing the titles of his essays and shoehorning, uh, sometimes quite directly, sometimes rather abstractly, uh, each of these essays into his subheadings as he talked mm. about. Um, uh, the reasons that African-American history remains obscure as he talks about past leadership and current leadership, um, as he talks about the era of Reconstruction, where he was the acknowledged expert both during his lifetime and after. Uh, And many of these stories have to do with Reconstruction, either uh, moments from Reconstruction um, or um, moments that occurred because of the failure of Reconstruction. So Reconstruction is really a major theme of this book. So we're we're, we're taking a lot of inspiration from W.E.B. Du Bois's work in that regard. Awesome. I I will say, I don't know that it was your essays that was the first thing that taught me about something like, you know, Black Wall Street and the, the, um, you know, what happened there, the tragedy there. There are a lot of these stories that certainly, even to a modern audience, are really lesser known and, and, uh, you know, partially understandably because, you know, how do you condense... 400 years of history in two semesters or whatever. But, you know, when you think about the broader context of a, of a schooling life being, you know, 18 years or 13 years, whatever, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff that isn't covered for good reason and for nefarious reason. How do you go about telling some of these stories that have really been that very rarely told before and certainly never this way? Well, you have to assume that the reader has never encountered them before, um, which means that this book is not going to be everything to everybody. Uh, you know, I would love to write a book of, of serious history intended for a, a, a very you know, high-level academic audience. That's not this book. This book is assuming that someone has a, an open mind towards history, but probably has never heard some of these stories before. And with a lot of these stories... I had never heard them before. I found the object first or in, encountered a story while, you know, chasing down some other story or disappearing some down some other historical rabbit hole. And the story was so bracing and so fresh and so unusual that it just had to be told. And I would go out and find some numismatic object that helped me tell the story. It's challenging because, you know, people ask me all the time, why have I never heard these stories before? Why have I never heard about about this person? Why, why have I never uh, heard about this event and, and honestly, the, the answer is twofold. The answer is these are stories of people that did not have access to the, 
dominant mainstream uh, communication styles, whether it be, you know, big newspapers or TV or whatever else. And also the, the African-American community saw their stories systematically obscured by many of those uh, mainstream institutions, um, sometimes because racism told those institutions that it wouldn't be of interest to a white audience, uh, sometimes because the uh, mainstream institutions didn't like how it reflected upon the character of America or you know, perhaps upon those institutions themselves. So you're dealing with stories that Honestly, sometimes I can never tell in any kind of complete way because there are no historical sources. None were kept. None were saved. They were intentionally shrouded. Um, and while meaningful to a, a segregated and self-supporting community at, at some point in the past, um, you know, the, the paper trail that um, majority groups are often privileged enough to leave behind because of their wealth and privilege – the paper trail just doesn't exist. So sometimes the story is, I don't know what the story is. And I can't begin to tell you as a historian how frustrating that is, uh, especially for, you know, I mean, I, I write about Thomas Jefferson. We know what Thomas Jefferson had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner pretty much every day of his life. And to go from that to whole lifetimes that never made the newspaper that were never recorded in a letter that made its way into an archive, that never saw a TV story or a radio interview, but lives of great importance and vigor and interest, where do you go? How do you start? How do you tell those stories? And, and the, the real tragedy of many parts of African-American history is, is that you can't. Those stories are just gone uh, and no one remembers. And, and if someone doesn't remind us today to remember these stories – the next generation might suffer a, a, a similar kind of fate. Could numismatic objects be integrated into history curricula, whether at the elementary, middle, or high school level? Or we could talk about going into a more of a university setting as well. But do you think that some of these stories, to the extent that they can be remembered, that you're trying to tell with your new book, do you think that we could integrate coins into a more meaningful way and and tell stories about coins that help to foreground these kind of forgotten or suppressed stories that you're talking about? Well, yes and no. Even this book is not a, a book about coins, you know, and there's not stories about coins. There are stories about people and there are stories about communities and there are stories about events where the coins or medals or paper money or what have you are a useful way to illustrate it. And I don't mean that necessarily in a visual way, but they're, they're a useful way to sort of uh, uh, summarize and encapsulate their essence um, and unfortunately, you know, basic secondary historical education doesn't really do that sort of connection with material culture or objects to stories. It tells the stories and tells you to remember these people and these dates and these places. And, you know, it's on the text test and you can forget it as soon as the test is over and next, you know, coins are great for textbook illustrations. I wish they were used more for that, but in terms of using coins to teach history, I think that the coins only become meaningful when the history is known rather than vice versa. I, I don't think coins teach history, you know, with the exception of some forgotten Roman emperor that's only known from his portrait on some obscure bronze, you know, found in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I think coins uh, can exemplify history, but I'm not sure they really teach it. But I think that history teaches us 
that these coins are worth or metals or what have you are worth appreciating on some wholly different level beyond just as a collectible. And, and I think that's the approach that I kind of take. As someone who, you know, I don't know that I've read all of your essays about these topics over the last three, four years on social media. Um, but I've certainly consumed a lot of them and appreciate them. Uh, my sense is if everything else in the book follows that form, that the resulting work is going to have so much resonance in broader American historical corners, if you will, than a, a numismatic sense. Um, you know, I don't know if there's like a, a history version of the Booker Prize or one of these other things, but um, what's the um, what's the end game for this as far as how, how far a net can can this cast because of its uh, importance in as we've noted, you know, areas that have been so overlooked. It's weird. I think for historical people. I had, I had some conversations with some some academic uh, uh, publishing personalities about the book. And in talking to them, it was clear that they sort of pigeonholed it as a, a book for coin collectors. Now, if you've ever been to a coin show, you could probably look around and guess there's probably not a whole lot of people at coin shows that are terribly interested in African-American history. Not to say none of them are, not to say that most people have no interest, but, you know, uh, this this is not the, the prime demographic for African-American history, the, the sort of folks that we encounter at coin shows typically, which is a, that's a, that's a whole different podcast. We can get into the, the whys and hows and how to fix it of, of that. Um, in fact, we should do that. Write that down. Um, <laughs> but but for this book, I, I, I mean, it's, it's going to see national distribution. You know, Whitman gets their stuff into Barnes and Nobles and stuff like that. But it's, it's going to be hard. I mean, I, I think in, in some ways it's going to be a, a book in search of an audience rather than a book tailored for an audience because I'm not sure it's it's the kind of content that a lot of coin people are looking for. It is not a reference work. It is not a catalog. It is not a book where, you know, oh, I have this African-American related coin token or medal. Let's see what page it's listed on. It's not that kind of book. Um, and for history people, and there is a vibrant, dynamic world of great works coming out every single year from academic publishers on all sorts of African-American historical topics, you know, uh, common and obscure, ancient and modern. I mean, it's, it's a very, very healthy, dynamic field. You know, they look at a book like this. It's basically a collection of essays about, you know, coins in my collection. And, and it's easy to dismiss it even though the, the history is very good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't plan on filling this book with footnotes and, and quoting the most uh, uh, modern, up-to-date historical theorists, which is sometimes what the PhD class is looking for. But, but my fear with this book is that my mom will buy five copies, all my coin buddies will buy a copy, some will end up in the library, and that neither history people nor coin people really take to it. And we're just going to have to go see how that goes. Um, I hope it has a broad reach. It, it not only tells these stories, but it also suggests a whole new approach to how to collect these kinds of objects. Uh, and I think that whether you're into Franklin halves or, you know, national banknotes or ancient coins, I think that that approach will be useful and um, distinctive for you. It sounds like you're sort of a dweller on the threshold in the sense that you're kind of in between worlds and, and I, it's, it strikes me as unfortunate that, as you call them, the PhD class, I think that's as good a term for them as any, you know, is 
suspicious of hobby publishing. We're suspicious of hobbyists in general. We've spoken to ancient coin collectors and ancient coin collecting advocates who where that that divide becomes quite a bit more acrimonious. But it does sound like there's a, a there is a gulf that exists in between the sort of hobbyist collectibles coin collecting world and and the sort of more academic world. And your book, like you said, kind of almost splits the difference. But Jeff and I had a fascinating conversation going on two years ago now, uh, which feels kind of unreal. But anyway, um, with a historian who had analyzed sort of uh, racialized conceptions of value in America and how our notions of hard money and and the sort of interest in hard money, silver and gold specie, you know, is, is actually in some ways tied um, conceptually to you know, institutionalized white supremacy. That, that sounds like Michael O'Malley's book. That is exactly Michael O'Malley's book. That's who we talked to. Uh, we talked to Michael O'Malley and he shared with us a concern that he had. He'd, he'd served on a couple of government panels talking about redesigning, um, you know, American paper money, especially, you know, with the sort of political dispute that arose about including Harry Tubman on paper money. He, he expressed a concern that uh, someone like Harry Tubman, who is a very, you know, a, a fierce abolitionist and an incredibly brave person in many different senses, he was concerned that she would be sort of tamed or tokenized or kind of in her depiction that they might sort of turn her into a mascot in favor of a system of which she might not, in fact, approve. And so but I'm curious, though. As more and more commemorative coins are issued, you know, we, we just started the American Women Quarters program with Maya Angelou kicking that program off at the beginning of this year. Is that something that you worry about that, you know, a well-intentioned attempt at honoring and representing people whose stories might not otherwise make it into the mainstream can become that sort of form of masketization or tokenization? Is that something that you think about at all? And is that anything that not that you touched on that specifically in the book, but is that something that you, in the course of your research, have reflected on at all? Yes and no. Uh, you know, I'm of, of two minds of this. Um, when something has been so completely and intentionally obscured as so many chapters of African-American history, I feel like any way you get that into the mainstream is great. That being said, ultimately, the story of African-American history is a, a story of struggle, triumph, and retrench struggle again. Um, it is not a story of uh, constant upward and onward progress against, uh, you know, an asymptote of perfection. Um, it's a story of, of inevitably, you know, uh, uh, two steps forward and one step back, or in some cases, one step forward and two steps back. You use the word mascotization. And I, I think that that implies the challenge of executing these stories and executing the commemorations in the right way. Um, you know, when the Booker T. Washington half dollars, uh, and including the, the Washington Carver half dollar came out in the 1950s, um, those were half dollars that some people look at as progress in civil rights. You know, the first, the first American coins that depict someone of African descent. But what they also did was they, they bought into uh, racial tropes and stereotypes of the era, particularly the idea that somehow African-Americans were more uh, 
um, uh, more likely to lapse into communism, uh, which is ostensibly what those coins were actually authorized for, was to fight communism, uh, and that they were more apt to lapse into communism uh, because of their hatred of capitalism or their 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 hatred of the capitalistic system of labor or you know mental lack of acuity and all of these very very racist things that you can read if you read about the history of the Washington Carver and the Booker T. Washington half. So it is easy sometimes to commemorate uh, an African-American figure, an African-American event, while still using that figure or using that event to memorialize white supremacy. And so, you know, there are, there are ways to, for a, a, you know, an Anglo majority or a dominant paradigm to pat itself on the back for how not racist it is, because look at us, we're commemorating these stories of these people, but to do so in a way that really doubles down on the white supremacy that those folks oftentimes, you know, battled against whether it was their primary battle, like a civil rights leader or a secondary battle, like a, an academic or a, a scientist who just had to, uh, you know, face those forces and those headwinds their whole lives. Here in Little Fort Mill, South Carolina, where I live, we have a, a monument called the Faithful Slaves Monument. And it is a commemorative obelisk um, that is to commemorate the African-Americans, well, the slaves, the enslaved South Carolinians, uh, who remained loyal to the Confederate States of America and stayed home basically to protect everything the Confederacy was fighting for. Now, looking back from 2022, we can see that that's a completely nonsensical premise. I mean, you know, just it, it didn't happen. And it was erected in the 1890s during this sort of era of lost cause ideology um, as a way to celebrate white supremacy, even insofar as it was, you know, on some level, seemingly celebrating a, a certain number of, of African-American citizens of the neighborhood. And so that's been difficult to sort of uh, sort of tease out in the time since then, because in a in a area where no one of African-American descent is really celebrated for any reason. It's easy to look at that and say, well, shoot, that monument's the only thing that actually celebrates these, these African-American characters uh, from that era. But it does so so problematically that arguably it's worse than if the monument was never put up in the first place. So I, I think that that's the real risk of what you, what you said in, in terms of mascotization, is that you have to, to tell these stories in a straightforward enough way and in a self-knowing way and in a, a self-reflective way to and ask yourself, you know, are we celebrating this story to pat ourselves on the back while still, you know, uh, lining the nest of white supremacy? Or are we actually telling these stories to celebrate the uniqueness and humanity of the people or events involved in a way that shows the struggle and celebrates them for who and what they are, not stereotypically in our own mind what they might represent to us. And that's a and, challenge and one you have to be cognizant of. Oh, absolutely. And I'd imagine that soliciting input from historians and from members of the communities in question would be an item on the list in terms of approaching these issues thoughtfully. I think it's vital. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but 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 that being said, you know, no one person you know, speaks for a whole group or anything like that. Oh, I, of course not. But to solicit, yeah. you know, from experts and from a broad swath of people across the community, to the extent that you can get any 
representative opinion, of course. It's just important yep. to talk to people who have a deep understanding of it. I guess yep. what I'm driving at. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I think that's very true. And I think that's where, you know, having a sort of broad based historical approach and, you know, to some extent reading and, and knowing the the modern approaches to these very difficult subject matters uh, so that you can take in all of those perspectives and let them educate your perspective rather than giving your perspective and hoping these folks from other perspectives agree with it or see value in it, you know? So, so it, it's almost listening and then writing rather than writing and then listening. Like you said, we could do a number of podcasts about a lot of these topics. Uh, but, you know, I have to imagine that to your point about representing particularly marginalized groups um, from the perspective of the dominant group without trying to, you know, foreground their humanity, I have to imagine that depictions of the other, obviously, African-American history has great bearing on this, but I imagine that, you know, monetary and medallic depictions of the other throughout American history fall into that to some extent. That too, in terms of depicting, I, I tend to think of, of indigenous people. I tend to think of how they're often depicted, you know, as, as a manifestation of that kind of quote unquote dominant or, you know, imperialist or racist perspective. And now obviously we don't have time to get into the complexities of that, but have you ever considered sort of looking, taking sort of a similar lens and, and applying it to, you know, other classes of U.S. numismatic material and trying to kind of draw certain lines between them in terms of the kind of issues of perspective that we're talking about? Well, yes. I mean, that's something you always have to be cognizant of on these things. I will say that I intentionally avoided it in this book. Um, I didn't look for things that depicted African-Americans. I didn't look for things that commemorated African-Americans. I looked for things that were made by or for African-Americans during their time as a useful object. Um, you know, a, a later medal made by a white medalist for a white audience depicting Harriet Tubman was of absolutely no interest for me. It's just not what I'm, I'm going after. Now, that being said, you could teach a whole class about, you know, uh, um, the, the basis of white, his, of white supremacy through uh, depictions of, of marginalized groups on numismatic objects. I just think it's, it's kind of, it is, it is adjacent to these stories, but it's not where I was going with these stories primarily. Oh, certainly. And, and I think that your approach is in some ways more historical and that you, you've grounded yourself in the communities that you're covering in some sense or objects created by these communities. And there's not a lot of them. <laughs> That's the challenging part. There's a lot more of, you know, uh, of depictions, um, you know, or or there, there's an awful lot of, you know, commemorations of, you know, good white people who helped black people. There's a lot of that in numismatics, too. And again, that's that's just wasn't what I was chasing after. So that's that's a different book entirely, I guess. Well, hopefully uh, it's one that um, maybe we'll see uh, from your pen or somebody else's. But certainly the more uh, stories that are told of these objects, uh, I'm all all for it. Um, and I'm certainly I know Chris uh, joins me in eagerly anticipating this book. And um, so any idea as far as a, a timeline, you hinted that you just have to bring it, uh, you know, down the stretch uh, as we're down the stretch on the podcast today, a any sort of uh, tentative timeline or something, you know, I can sort of keep in mind as when to look for this. 
I think it's probably a, a, a 2023 kind of uh, timeline for, for when you have in your hands. Uh, some of that's on, on, uh, on my hands for, for not actually getting the words on the page uh, in a, in a, as a timely a manner as I would have liked. Uh, and then, you know, just the, the publishing timeline has, has sort of been, you know, pushed back for, you know, a variety of other reasons as well. But I, I'd say sometime in 2023 is probably likely. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to it. And we do thank you again today for uh, exploring this with us and taking some time from the process to, to let people know about it, give a little insight and, um, you know, preview this because it's, it's, I think, as we've noted, an important work and uh, hope to support that and uh, look forward to seeing it and spreading the word about it when it is live. Yeah, when we've got it in our hands, you'll have to uh, have me back so I can brag about it and flog it and make people buy it. Awesome. <laughs> well, well, we'll definitely look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. That was our interview with John Kralovich. Uh, exciting stuff. We can't wait to see his uh, book in person, in you know, at, come to realization. And uh, we can certainly uh, plan on talking to him uh, about it when it comes out. So we, we thank you so much for uh, staying with us through the end of this uh, show. We couldn't do it without CoinRoll Plus. We couldn't do it without you. Um, and of course, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the CoinRoll Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinRoll Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRoll Plus at CoinRollPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.